realizing you're not just an investigator, you're not a salesperson, you're, you're being a human first, then that's what you take into the conversation will make you a better active listener and eventually help you get to these expected outcomes. That's David Thompson, partner and VP of operations with WZN Associates, an interview and interrogation training company. David also served as director of investigations, creating customized investigation and training programs for both the public and private sectors. I'm Kylie Schmitz. I'm Dan Lappin, and this is Breaking Sales, a nonconformist take on rejecting the sales status quo. Join the Lappin 180 team as we break the tried and died sales tactics and techniques that are failing you and your prospects. So Dave, one of the things that I've noticed over the years with sales professionals is they work really, really hard to get these appointments and they go on these appointments and when they get into the conversation with the prospect, they start asking questions. And it, it's usually at this point that the conversation is going to go one of two directions. It's either going to go a sales direction, which is where the salesperson wants the conversation to go so they can make a sale, or it's going to go more toward an advisory direction, more of a collaborative direction where there may not be a sale right away, but the conversation ends up going a lot better and deeper. And so one of the things I want to ask you is, can you give our listeners a, a little bit about the philosophy that you have in asking really good questions? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think before you even get to the question, it's what's the, what's the mindset of the salesperson or in our case, and the parallel is the investigator. And so, as you just mentioned, when you you finally get this the sales meeting set up, or we have an interview or an, an interrogation, if you if you like that word instead, set up. And uh, sometimes investigators are so focused on getting this this confession or this admission that you know if you sat down with somebody and you made a direct accusation, and and I'll translate that to a sales conversation in a second. But if you sat down with somebody and said you know, our investigation clearly shows that you you did it, whatever it would be. Obviously, the the immediate instinct for somebody is to defend themselves and say, I, I didn't do it. You're crazy. What are you, what are you talking about? And now we've created this adversarial relationship in the room because I basically told you exactly what I wanted to hear. Clearly, you have resistance to that. And now the rest of the conversation is me trying to persuade you that you were wrong in the first place. And that's really the wrong, the wrong way to go about it. So what we really focus on are rapport-based, you know, non-confrontational conversation. You mentioned about a sales conversation. Very similarly, if the person that I'm talking to, my potential customer, and we're developing rapport and they can start to see very transparently where I'm guiding the conversation. And I'm asking questions where clearly I already know what answer I'm expecting. You know, is naturally going to start to set up this resistance and this barrier between me and my potential customer. I mean, I like how you just put it, this conversation, instead of becoming, you know, almost advisory or as some type of mediator to the solution to the problem, I've instead become the aggressor, the adversary, and the same person that they don't want to talk to in the first place. So I think it really starts with the mindset before you even get into the specific question that you asked. 
Yeah, I like the way you, you uh, kind of played with the word interrogation earlier because I, I, I know a lot of prospects feel like they're being interrogated. So when you're teaching investigators and you're coaching them, how do you help them avoid or remove the confirmation bias? Yeah, man, that's a that's a great question because a, a lot of it, you know, you're going to have implicit biases and biases that are are so difficult to actually, if ever, eliminate. But I think there's some things you can do to to mitigate those things. And number one is not having a predetermined outcome of that conversation. And then number two is having a appropriate structure or question strategy where you're forcing yourself to be an active listener and ask appropriate questions that allow your subject of this conversation, whether it's a suspect or a customer, to answer the questions and guide the conversation versus you do that. You mentioned letting go of the outcome. I think that's tough just in general for human beings because people work very hard toward outcomes. People are judged by outcomes. We're taught at early ages in school, it's all about outcomes, hence, you know, report cards, grades, SAT scores, things like that. And, and in sales, you could have really intelligent sales professionals who do a fantastic job of connecting verbal dots, you know, during a conversation and they're well prepared. But the second that that individual gets tied to a particular outcome, it directly influences what the sales professional is listening for and what questions they will ask or won't ask. Tell the audience a little bit about like, how do you help the investigators set up their questions? Because right, you, you can't come right at the individual. You have to kind of build questions in a way that kind of in a weird way, right? Creates a little bit of trust. You're right. I mean, we're measured on outcomes and anybody that's listening here probably I'm sure lives and dies by some kind of scorecard. The first thing we have to do is how are we defining what is a positive outcome? And in an investigation, what we really try to focus our, our attendees on is don't walk into the room with the intention or the goal of getting a confession. Walk into the room with trying to get as much reliable information as you can. Let's talk a little bit about rapport. I have a tendency to look at rapport as a hiding spot, traditionally speaking where people, sales professionals go into a meeting and they use this whole idea of a common bond or creating some kind of bridge with the other individual, the prospect, as a way to, they believe, soften the prospect and gain trust. But what I've learned over the years is most prospects are really well aware of the alternative motive of rapport. And a lot of prospects are put off by rapport because they consider it disingenuous and fake because usually for the prospect, what usually happens right after rapport is the salesperson leaps into sales-driven questions. So talk a little bit about in your world, this idea of, from an investigation standpoint, rapport. Rapport is not something that's just a, a step in the process. We develop rapport throughout the entire conversation. It, it's probably initiated in the beginning through some, some kind of you know, shared dialogue. But what, what happens often is I think a sales professional gets into this 
almost scripted this attachment to the end game. And so after I developed rapport with a few, you know, three or four simple questions, tell me about your day. How long have you been working here for? Can you believe you saw, you know, what happened in the game last night? And then we immediately start to get to business. It, it clearly looks like rapport was just something I had to check off of a list. Integrating rapport throughout the conversation. Be a human first and a salesperson second is, is really important. Rapport is built off of shared experiences, but that doesn't mean we have to have something in common. Am I being a good active listener? Don't force it. Make sure it's not just a segment of the conversation. It's integrated throughout the entire, the entire piece of dialogue that you're going to have. Can you share with our listeners a very tough experience that you've had in negotiations and kind of walk us through a little bit, like what made it so difficult? How did you build the rapport? What questions and how did you kind of start into your questions? One that kind of sticks out from somebody who's most resistant is very high level gentleman's working at like a construction yard and he was pretty much stealing everything that wasn't, wasn't locked down. He was even stealing gas for his vehicle from these big uh, fuel tanks that they had for the equipment. He was sleeping on the job and a variety of other things. So I sit down with him and the same person that has been interviewed at prior companies for other acts of theft or fraud in the past. And so as soon as I sat down with him, 30 seconds on the conversation, he starts kind of basically cursing at me and saying, get, get to the point. What's this conversation about? I know you're going to have me arrested anyway. And immediately to me, that's just like going into a potential, you know, sales, sales conversation or negotiation where the person says, I don't need your service. Just don't waste my time. I'll give you 30 seconds to, to get out of here. And they just kind of listen to your pitch. And so what you have to think about, what's the incentive for this person to listen to me? And my approach in that conversation became acknowledging the time he's about to spend with me, giving him respect for that, acknowledging that there's a reason for him to talk to me and giving him some type of, I'll call it hope, I guess. I understand his time is important and I want to hear his side of the story, but I think it's important that he, he may hear what I have to say first in that conversation. I'm going to want to encourage dialogue from the subject. And what's important are the types of questions that we ask. So I mentioned open-ended expansion and echo questions. If I'm interviewing, maybe two employees got into an argument and I'm I'm asking a witness to that argument, you know, what did you see? What happened? And they said, you know, I saw these two employees fighting each other and I don't follow up and ask, what do you mean by fighting? So now maybe in my report and my follow-up investigation, I'm picturing these two employees in a fist fight with each other when that's never what really happened. And now you know, I ask them what happened. They tell me they were just yelling at each other. And in my mind, now they're lying to me because I picture a fight, which is not just yelling. And because I assumed the definition of something, I'm working towards the wrong outcome, working towards just validating what, what I assume. If a customer says those buzzwords of we're looking for more proactive, strategic approach, working for a more comprehensive solution or, or whatever words they want to use, as a salesperson, we just immediately think, we know what that means. We got it. I'm going to work on a package that achieves that, or I'm going to give you a pitch that achieves that. But what we feel is proactive might be completely different from what our customer is perceiving as proactive. So allowing them to define these statements for us versus we define it for them, I think is, is a key concept in avoiding that attachment and confirmation bias. We can't draw with a broad brush, but my feeling is that when a prospect says, hey, we like our current provider, that's a way for the prospect 
to defend themselves. That's a way for that prospect to let themselves off the hook from having to invest any more time or energy into the conversation or any subsequent conversations that could continue. Sure. It reminds me of a specific type of denial we might hear from a subject that we call an explanatory denial. So if I just ask somebody, you know, did you take the money from the, from the company? An emphatic denial is I didn't take the money. The explanatory denial, which is what we're referring to, is when instead of somebody saying, I don't want it because that's difficult. Now we're in this kind of argument is instead, well, I wouldn't take the money because I love my job or I wouldn't take that money. I have enough money. And so instead of arguing essentially whether or not I actually took the money, I'm begging you to argue with me about whether or not I love my job, which is an argument I could probably win. So it's, it's a deflection away from that primary topic. So it's the same thing of, no, I'm not interested because we've already got, we've already got a solution or I'm not interested because you don't have a lot of time. The next, you know, the next couple of months are really busy time for us. We can't focus on this right now. And so I'm not actually rejecting your solution that you're selling me. I'm trying to create a different argument that you can't, in, in my mind, persuade otherwise. You can't change how much time I have the next two months. You can't change if I have a budget and you can't change if I already have a, a solution. So it's a very similar concept. And the way we re respond to that during an interview, if somebody said, I would never do that because I love my job, is instead of arguing whether or not they love their job, instead of arguing if their budget is big enough or not, agree with it, understand it, and ask them more questions about it. And it deflates that argument essentially. So in your world, you're sitting across the table from someone where there might be some pretty solid facts that would suggest that they took the money, but you don't know that yet. So you can't go in there and look for the conviction. You have to go in there and learn. And in this explanatory denial that this individual gives you, you have to stay in the game. You have to learn more about it. But again, you still can't go in for the kill as the investigator. You have to continue to ask and learn. And you might even have to end that first conversation knowing that you might have to come back a second time or a third time with that individual. Is that what happens? Yeah, it could. I mean, ideally, depending on the type of conversation, whatever information they're giving us, we can always leave that conversation, do a follow-up investigation and come talk to them again in a couple of weeks. And what's important is that we end conversation one in a way that still sets us up for success in conversation two, meaning we don't just sign this person off in a negative, negative fashion with any kind of remarks at the end of the conversation. We still end with the same rapport we began with. We've developed this more longer term relationship, you know, versus some type of adversarial relationship where they already are dreading the day I come back. And I think I see that a lot again, as a consumer, if I have a vendor trying to sell to me, we had a conversation for some reason I, I said no, or maybe not at this time, they schedule a follow-up with me in three weeks. And I'm just dreading that conversation in three weeks because I know where our last one ended. And instead, I've, I've dealt with a, a lot of sales professionals who do a really good job of understanding during those three weeks, maybe there's something they can send me that is, you know, was substantial to the conversation that, that we had. I had a, a sales professional, had a couple sales meetings, which were really good, very informal, uh, rapport-based. And between meeting A and meeting B, which was maybe a month apart, 
we had talked about some completely irrelevant topics during the first meeting, just getting to know each other. And he ended up sending me an article about these other topics. Hey, this reminded me of the conversation we had. Thought you'd enjoy this. Hope all is well. Nothing to do with the sales approach, but instead he's just continuing to develop this, this trust and reflecting back that to makes, makes me feel like he actually was actively listening to our conversation versus just going through this checklist like we mentioned before. What would be, there's so many parallels here, David. I'm interested, what would be the top three themes or bits of advice that you would give our listeners when it comes to asking questions based on your experience as obviously an investigator and interrogator? Number one is to set up the question. If I'm going to ask something, anticipate what reasons you might have that you're either uncomfortable answering it, you might close off your answer, you don't understand the full context of the question. So I think number one is what am I going to set up or strategize or discuss with you before I ask that question to set it up, set it up the right way. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. If I'm going to ask you about your budget, for example, maybe what you're looking to spend on something. I think if you just, if you're in the middle of the sales conversation or negotiation and, and you start to ask me a specific question like that, that question can immediately make me uncomfortable or resistant, or I'm not really sure what you're going to do with that information. So having a bit of a, a rationalization or to kind of soften that question and show empathy beforehand is, Hey, I, you know what? We've been talking to a lot of clients. I know COVID has impacted revenue for a lot of people, especially in this, in this vertical. And maybe hopefully we've discussed this with this client specifically. So we know, um, you know, budgets are fluctuating all the time. So we don't want anybody to feel like they're committed to any, any answer here. We're just trying to make sure we work within the parameters of what the client's expecting. And then you ask a question about the budget, for example. But the concept here is, I know if I ask somebody about their, their budget, they don't want to feel like they're locked into an answer. They're committing to something. I'm writing it down. So before I ask the question, setting it up with understanding it's a fluid conversation, understanding this is going to change as we discuss, um, it takes away some of those fears before I ask the question. The second piece would be focused on the type of question that you're asking. We try to avoid leading or closed-ended questions. We're focused on uh, really the three I would, I would say would be open-ended, which is very much, you know, tell me about your current provider expansion question would be something like, you know, we've been with this provider for, for quite a long time and they did, uh, we had a lot of struggles there in the beginning. Well, tell me more about what happened in the beginning. That's an expansion question. And then an echo question. Again, we talked about earlier, well, we had some struggles in the beginning. Well, what do you mean by struggles? So I think number two is, are we selecting the appropriate question to allow the subject to give us as much information un uncontaminated as possible? And I think that ties right into my third takeaway would be listen to the answer. The best way to ask a question is to actually care about what the person is going to say in response. And probably one of the weakest parts of, of most uh, people's conversations here are to actually ask the question, care about the answer, and then flex the next statement you're going to make or question based off of that answer instead of having a list of here's the 10 questions you need to ask this this potential client. So being an active listener, you know, listening for those words like you just mentioned, proactive or whatever, that we need to clarify or define, identifying if the person seems to become resistant, you know, with one of these explanatory type denials, but act active listening to the answer and then adjusting 
our line of questioning based off of those responses. Yeah, you brought up the word listening, and we really haven't hit on that yet. Yet, it's probably the most powerful skill that any one of us could bring to any conversation interaction. Is there anything particular you teach investigators regarding the skill of listening? Yeah, we focus a lot on listening. And it's difficult because you know, a lot of times when you're asking an open-ended question, for example, you might have, you know, let's say there was an incident at, uh, at a bar yesterday and there was a couple of people fighting. And so I'm talking to a witness and I just ask, tell me what happened. And the witness is going to give me a, a five-minute story. We're naturally conditioned to interrupt that person a million times because they say something that we want to clarify. And the problem is when we interrupt somebody a, a million times, we're contaminating their response where when I interrupt you telling your story, you're going to forget where you were. You, being a good active listener is, is sometimes difficult because there's so much we're processing in our head of what we want to follow up on, what we want to ask somebody, and we're still focused on what they're saying. So we, you know, we work on how to take notes appropriately during a conversation so as not to offend or create some type of disruption during the conversation, but instead as maybe checkpoints of where I want to follow up on. But then also, you know, listening to these details can really be the key element to getting to that outcome that you're that you're looking for. And sometimes when we're when we don't listen to those specific words, you know, for example, if if I asked an employee how often you know are they late to work, and they said, "No, I'm I'm usually on time." Well, the word "usually" means sometimes they're not on time. And sometimes when we just listen and kind of passively, and we're so focused on the next thing we're going to ask, we miss those key terms where somebody's qualifying their answer. Maybe somebody, you know, gave off a negative tone or um, a statement that needs clarification, but we're so focused on what we're going to ask next, we didn't actually listen to what they just said. You know, one of the things that I, I wanted to touch on a little bit more is just this, this idea of trust. Anything you want to share with our listeners about just some, some, some simple concepts around how do you build or start to build some trust? You have to do it with sincerity and not be somebody that you're not. And I've seen that from everything from a, a sales pitch to an interrogation to somebody going on a date, first date. I mean, when, when you come across and you're trying to be relatable, I guess is probably the best word. You're trying to be relatable and you have nothing to relate to. You can still be interested in what somebody is discussing and have absolutely no knowledge of it whatsoever. But I've seen conversations where you're talking with somebody and they say, you know, how they watched the soccer match last night. They're a huge soccer fan. And the person who's conducting the conversation is clueless about soccer. No idea, but they want to be relatable and they think they're supposed to have this shared, you know, experience. And they say, oh, yeah, I like soccer too. As soon as they say that, this conversation is going to go into this kind of goofy period where I'm going to have to try to pretend like I know what in the hell you're talking about. When you ask me who my favorite team is or my favorite player, if I caught the, the game over the weekend, I can't answer those questions. So I think having transparency is important. Having sincerity is important. And you can still, you can still again, be interested and ask appropriate questions to let somebody share experiences experiences with you. But one of the other important pieces of rapport is to recognize where the person is in the conversation. If clearly they're starting to become a little resistant or uncomfortable, or they're like, this is a waste of time because they're looking at their watch or their phone or whatever, that would be a time that I'd probably provide a statement of, 
you know, some of their autonomy. Hey, you know what? I really appreciate you making some time for me today. I know your time is valuable, especially with, you know, next couple of weeks coming up, but statements like that to identify that, all right, this, this kind of fluff conversation isn't getting anywhere. Make sure I share some, some respect and transparency with the person I think is really important. You know, that expected outcome and, and it relates to the confirmation bias. I think that, you know, if, if listeners take anything away, we just went through three points with the questions, but walking into a conversation where you feel like you have an expected outcome is you're really, if the outcome is not defined appropriately, you're really kind of setting yourself up for, for failure. And I think on the flip side of what we discussed, you know, I've also seen the expected outcome is failure. Sometimes I've seen sales professionals or interviewers, you know, have this conversation set up where they know, you know, this guy's never going to admit to me, this person, there's no way they're going to talk to me. And I've seen that. And I felt that with sales professionals where it's like they're making cold calls or maybe they're trying to touch base with me every three months for the last three years. And they know it's just kind of this, you know, routine rejection because they're not going to get my business. If you make the phone call, assuming you're not going to get my business, why are you even making the call in the first place? So don't expect to to fail. Expect to get some kind of information out of that call uh, to set you, set you up for more longer term success. And I think that that's the flip side of that expected outcome we didn't touch on earlier. Is there like a particular interrogation or interview that always stands out in your mind? And and if there is, you know, can you share a little bit about it and why it always stands out from an experience that you had? Yeah, I've got I got quite a few, I guess that that stand out. This actually wasn't was not my my interview, but got a few that stand out. So I got one where I listened in on a conversation. I was a witness to this conversation. We were, we were training an interviewer actually. And this, the reason this story stands out in this context is the interviewer did not do a great job of listening. And we're just focused on, on listening. And the subject was alleged to steal multiple cash deposits from a jewelry store. And the interviewer was trying to project empathy and discuss you know, how sometimes people have financial pressures in their life and lead them to do things they wouldn't normally do. And the subject of the interview multiple times showed some strong signs of resistance, right? Kind of starts to shake her head. No, you know, starts to you know cross her arms, which can mean a variety of things. But in this context, she immediately crossed her arms when we brought up financial pressure. And then the subject says, I would never do something like that. I would never do that. And the interviewer just immediately reaccused the subject. Well, we know that she did. And of course, that set off this adversarial relationship. And the reason that sticks out to me for the, for the context of our conversation, this subject ended up getting up and leaving the room, just left. Well, we were able to get this person back into the room uh, to have a conversation. And I switched seats now with the interviewer. And the reason that sticks out is when the person says, I wouldn't do it. It's similar to what we discussed before when somebody says maybe that they already have a solution provider for the service you're trying to pitch. They already have a contract with somebody else. This is that explanatory denial. It's not, I didn't take the money. It's, I wouldn't do it because. And our interviewer at the time did not ask the person, well, what do you mean? Why not? Why didn't you take the money? Why wouldn't you have done it? Right? Asking an appropriate follow-up question. Instead, just reaccuse, which caused the person to get up, walk away, and be extremely frustrated. When she came back in the room, that was the first thing that I did is I apologized to her for not listening to her and then said, Hey, you mentioned that there's no way you would do something like that. 
why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you take the money? Because I know a lot of times, you know, people might make a decision out of, out of opportunity. So why wouldn't you do it? And she says, well, because I have plenty of money. My parents have money. I don't need any money. And the reason that's really interesting is, is the initial interviewer kept talking about financial issues, financial pressures, because we thought we knew what this woman was dealing with, when in fact, it was the complete opposite. This woman had no financial issues in her life. And so every time we were trying to steer the conversation a certain way, we were in fact losing credibility because we weren't listening to the subject themselves. And I think that it's a really, it's a really simple interview, but that one instance I think is a, is a good example to me. And it's an example I use in our training classes of the importance of listening to what your subject has to say, because they might guide you down a different, a different path. If, if we feel like we know the answer, you might be losing credibility throughout the entire conversation. Did she ever admit to it? She did. And she had, she admitted because she had told me that she actually had a vehicle she was driving that didn't belong to her. There was a much older man who had a lot of money that happened to, so you can, you can determine what kind of relationship this was, but this man let her drive his car around. It was a pretty nice car and she ends up wrecking the vehicle. And so he demanded that she paid for, you know, the deductible or whatever on the, on the vehicle, on the insurance. So it was going to cost her money. Now, this was money that she couldn't ask mom or dad for based off of the reason that she needed the money. So she has this need. And meanwhile, she's asked by her company if she can bring a couple deposits to the bank. So she has a need, the opportunity presents itself, and she made an impulsive, spontaneous type decision. So uh, the way in which the information was then gathered was by her telling me she, she doesn't need the money. She doesn't, you know, she has plenty of money is understanding that and then projecting empathy that sometimes people do things for other reasons, right? Other causes. And we started to talk about impulse and we started to talk about the process in which she would normally take the deposit. And that's when we got to that information. So it had nothing to do with my ability or my strength whatsoever. It was literally something as simple as just listening to the person sitting across from me. Very interesting. How do our listeners get a hold of you? How do our listeners, you know, find you? Simply put, Online, our website is w-z, w-z.com, and that stands for Wicklander Zalowski, which I know can be can be tough to spell. But w-z.com, my email is uh, d as in David, dthompson uh, at w-z.com. And really, anything on our website is, is easy for people to, to find. There's a, a ton of free information out there that we have on interviews, interrogations, communication, active listening. And really, and hopefully listeners were able to draw the parallel between what we do and primarily our business is to teach and train. And we train private sector companies and law enforcement organizations and federal agencies on how to have these difficult conversations where we're trying to get somebody to tell us something they don't want to tell us. And so hopefully listeners can draw the parallel between the two. And if you can draw that parallel, there's a ton of free information on our website and some fun articles about these topics that I think you can make a direct connection to your next sales conversation. It's that time again, Dan. Change the conversation. What do we have for today? We haven't done it in a little while, but there seems to be a trend. And that trend is trying to call people out in your first sentence when you're prospecting. So in other words, you're sending a prospect email or LinkedIn message and your first sentence might sound like this. Hey Dan, 
Respectfully, there is one key piece you are missing in your business. Now, I'm not going to go any further than that because <laughs> yeah. there's enough to talk about there. It reminds me of Talladega Nights, Kylie, where Will Ferrell would say respectfully in the movie, and then he would mock or put down or slam the other person. Yeah. And then at some point, I forget which character it was, turned to Will and said, you know, just because you say respectfully doesn't give you the right to say whatever you want. <laughs> and then Will says, well, yes, it damn well does. <laughs> it kind of feels the same way here. Just because you say respectfully doesn't mean you have the right to be so assumptive that you would follow up with, there is one key piece you are missing in your business where we've never talked, I don't even know what you do, or anything like that. I didn't read the rest of the email because that's all I needed to see. It was so assumptive. So for our listeners out there, number one, just because you use the word respectfully, it doesn't mean you have the right to slam your prospects. And number two, it's so assumptive, it's a complete turnoff. It puts people on the defensive. It doesn't draw people in. Dan, I think there's two things after hearing you share that, that came up for me. So the respectfully component, I've been hearing a lot of the sales folks that I coach. They say, I totally understand, but, and that to me is like false empathy. And, and that's what this reminds me of. It's like false respect. And now I'm going to tell you something that is completely off base. So that's one thing that came up for me. And then the other thing that came up for me as well as you, when you were talking was the assumption, right? That's attachment, completely attached to his solution and what he's trying to promote. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, this respectfully, there is one key piece of your business that you're missing shows me that he has no objectivity. Mm -hmm. And so speaking about confirmation biases, from every sentence forth after that first line, I read it to confirm this is nothing more than a useless sales ploy to get in front of me and try to sell me something. That's how confirmation biases work. Mm -hmm. And he jumped right into it, right out of the gate with a very assumptive, non-objective statement or commentary. Yeah. And I think assumptions are the fastest way to get the other person to stop thinking objectively. And he did a great job of it. So Dan, if you were coaching this individual who reached out to you, what are some suggestions or, or approaches they could use to rework this email? Well, I think you said it earlier. It's about being objective. For all of our listeners out there, this individual, when they say respectfully, comma, there is one key piece you are missing in your business as their first statement. Remember, they're being very assumptive and they're not showing any degree of objectivity. So as the recipient now, I'm not gonna be objective in my assessment. I'm gonna fall back on all my confirmation biases, which is I'm gonna look for reasons to disqualify this person from every word and sentence I read henceforth in this email. So as our listeners, the first thing you wanna do is show your own objectivity. Show your neutrality. Neutrality draws people in. So instead of what this individual wrote, I might say, I don't know if this is something that your business would need or be interested in. 
because the fact is we've never met, we've never talked, and I don't want to be assumptive about your business. Something like that, where the first sentence is just neutral so that as the person's reading, you've kind of avoided the immediate tendency for them to kick in those confirmation biases. You've avoided it to some degree, mm-hmm. at least out of the gate in that first sentence or two. Well, and Dan, I also like that because going back to the conversation with David, you also gave the prospect a sense of control. You gave them the autonomy to make the decision as to whether or not this is relevant to their business. Yeah, and that's a great point, Kelly, because you know, as, as Tom, who's part of our team, talks about all the time, it's not about setting the meeting. Because when it becomes about setting the meeting, you become attached. And when you become attached, you lose your objectivity. And all you do is you stimulate the tendency and the need for the recipient to read your email through the lens, trying to confirm their own biases that you're going to sell them. And to Tom's point, if you stick to your process and you realize it's a process of trying to engage the prospect to determine at some point if a conversation is worth having, you're going to become more neutral. And the more neutral you become, the more likely you are that people will feel, I hate to say this, safer Mm -hmm. and in more control as they read your email. And because of that, you have a higher propensity to draw people in. You know, Kylie, I'm going to add one more thing here. We talk about pattern recognition all the time and how it's important to disrupt the prospect's pattern recognition, whether it's via email, LinkedIn, voicemail, or actually in that first conversation. By giving the prospect the sense of control, as we've talked about in this episode, whether it's in your first email invite or LinkedIn message, or actually in the actual conversation, you are disrupting their pattern and their tendency to seek confirmation biased with you. So very powerful technique. Give the prospect the sense of control. Dan, what were some of the key takeaways that you got from the conversation with David? Kylie, there's three big takeaways I have from this conversation. Number one is confirmation biases we've already talked about. Number two, we haven't talked about as much, and that is give the prospect the feeling of control. What that means is, you know, David talked about never go into a meeting with a suspect, an interview with a suspect, and try to pin that suspect into a corner so you get the outcome that you want, which is that suspect will admit to the crime. Don't ever do that. Instead, you want to engage that suspect as he talked about. Let that suspect feel a sense of control in the conversation. It's the same in sales. Don't go into that meeting trying to pin your prospect into a corner that they need to make a change or that you found pain and now you're going to hammer them over the head with it until they make a decision for change. Instead, draw your prospect out. How do you draw your prospect out? A simple technique. When you're asking questions, ask the prospect. Say to your prospect, are you okay if I ask this or if you're not comfortable answering this question, that's okay. Let your prospect feel like they have a say in the conversation. That's a key technique to starting to build a little bit more credibility and trust, just like David talked about when he engages suspects. And the third one is how powerful it is to build trust through your questions, not through what you say, but through your questions. 
to do all of these three things, you have to learn to remove any attachment to the outcome. Just like David talked when he said that no interviewer investigator can go into a conversation with a suspect focused on an admission to the crime. It's the same in sales. You cannot go into that meeting looking for an outcome of getting the second meeting or getting the sale. You have to learn how to follow a process of asking questions that allows that prospect to think and gives you the chance to learn. Thanks for listening to Breaking Sales. If you want to get engaged with us outside of this podcast, be sure to go to our website, lapin180.com. That's L-A-P-P-I-N 180.com. And there you'll find information on upcoming workshops, different events we're doing throughout the United States, ways to engage with us on social media, as well as a form where you can suggest topics or guests for the podcast. We want to hear from you, so don't be shy. Kylie out. All right. Do we have another episode?